Welcome to Food Psych, a weekly podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 125 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Lisa Pearl, a wonderful health at every size dietitian and a mentor of mine who I just love. Lisa began her work as an eating disorder specialist more than 30 years ago at Children's Hospital in Boston, and she now runs her own group practice called CNC360, dedicated to helping people heal their issues with food. She's passionate about helping support people in their journey to a healthy relationship with food, which is an important aspect of the relationship to oneself. She deeply believes that everyone deserves and needs a sense of safety in order for healing to occur, and she's committed to prevention efforts and sociopolitical advocacy to help reduce the incidence of eating disorders. We talked about breaking down internalized weight bias, fighting back against diet culture, the importance of a health at every size approach to healing your relationship with food, and so much more, including the origins of the one question that I ask in each episode. I can't wait to share our conversation with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question. It's from a listener with initial B who writes, Help, I was weighed at the doctor's office recently, and it sent me into a tailspin of self-criticism in the middle of trying out intuitive eating for the first time. I got married six months ago, and after all the stress and restriction before the wedding, I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. However, I started my intuitive eating journey when I'm at one of my higher weights, somehow X pounds heavier than I was at my wedding. I'm in my friend's wedding, and she has very restrictive eating patterns, and I'm feeling so fearful and anxious that I won't be able to be happy in my body. I'm trying to stick to intuitive eating as much as possible, but my mornings are still full of fear and self-criticism. Is this a phase that most people go through? Is there an end in sight? And how do I let go of the weight loss ideal? So thanks, B, for that great question. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't meant as a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So yeah, first I want to say that the weight loss ideal is a real beast to get rid of. So have compassion with yourself for this. You're not alone. And most people definitely go through this process. So there is an end in sight. You need to just have faith and know that it will be hard for a while, but it will get better because that's what's going to help you get through this part. And it really does get better on the other side. So there are certain life events that can definitely be super triggering and weddings are a huge one. The wedding industrial complex is so tied up in diet culture and in the idea that women and femmes are quote unquote supposed to look a certain way for weddings. And so the pressure is real and it's systemic and it's part of patriarchy, right? Like the origins of so many wedding traditions go back to the days when weddings were literally an exchange of property between men and women were the property. So I want to highlight that both to say that it's not your fault that you're feeling those pressures 
And we shouldn't have to put up with this in 2017, right? We, it's, you know, women are people, not property these days. So we need to start, I think, dismantling these vestiges of patriarchy within ourselves that are still existing within the wedding industrial complex and really think critically about which wedding traditions we want to hold on to and which ones we want to let go of, right? Because, you know, there are certain traditions that might bring us joy and that's great, you know, and we can hold on to those. But for the ones that we're just doing for the sake of tradition, I, I think it's important to look at where that comes from and why we should want to hold on to it when it comes from, you know, a lineage of patriarchy. So I know that might seem like a bit of a tangent and sometimes talking about the patriarchy and feminism is hard for people to get their head around at first, but I think it could really help as you prepare to be in your friend's wedding because thinking about the systemic pressures you're facing and that she's facing, you know, they're causing her to be restrictive for the wedding and in general because patriarchy is part of the pressure on women and femmes to diet and shrink their bodies in general. I think that can be helpful. Like think about the pressures you're feeling to look a certain way as a member of the wedding party and recognize that those pressures weren't invented to make weddings more fun or to make the memories more beautiful. They were actually invented to put women on display so that men would want to have them as property. That's literally the origin of beauty standards and weddings. You know, and of course, today it's a little different, right? Because women aren't property, but there's there's that lineage there. So I think it's important to think about that. And these standards and stereotypes are perpetuated today because the wedding industry, just like the fashion industry and the beauty industry, and of course, the diet industry makes money off of people's insecurities. The idea that if we feel bad about ourselves, we'll buy more stuff to correct our perceived flaws, whether that's buy more diets and diet programs or bridal boot camps or hair extensions and makeup and bridal shoes and all the stuff that goes along with weddings, right? So just thinking about the origins of this stuff, thinking about the pressures that are on you coming from outside and recognizing you don't have to buy into them. Just because you've had those beliefs and not questioned them so far doesn't mean you can't start to question them now. And to say like, you know what, I'm going to push back against this thing or I'm going to decline to do this thing that was just created to try to make me feel bad about myself so I would buy stuff, you know, and I'm going to leave that behind. Maybe some of the things you're still going to embrace because you're not ready to let go of them or because you genuinely want to do them, right? So we can recognize these things for the oppressive tactics that they are, and we can keep the ones that bring us joy, and that's okay too, but we can opt out of the ones that cause us pain. So I think it's important to, to reflect on that, you know, what's causing you joy and what's bringing you pain? Or what's bringing you joy and what's causing you pain, rather. And the other thing I want to mention is it makes so much sense to me that you would weigh X pounds more now than you did at your wedding because it sounds like you were really restricting yourself before your wedding. And so many people have this experience of restricting like what before their wedding. And then, of course, they can't sustain it over the long run. And when they finally ease up when the wedding is over, they gain weight. And that's normal. So your body is not meant to be at a weight that it can only sustain through restriction. That's not a weight that is meant for you, right? So I would suggest taking the focus off of weight, like not weighing yourself and not letting the doctor weigh you anymore. Or if they do need to take your weight, at least to not let you see it and really have a serious discussion about it beforehand. I don't know what the lead up to this was when you were weighed at the doctor, whether you said anything before and they just ended up letting you see it or whether you didn't say anything. But it's really worth 
having the conversation with the doctor ahead of time and pointing out that if you see your weight or taking your weight could really set you back in your recovery, right? You don't even have to say, you could you could even say, I don't know if you have a diagnosed eating disorder or not, but you could say you do just to just to get them off your back. Like it's not any of their business actually what you weigh it, unless they are giving you anesthesia or administering certain medications or you're in recovery from a restrictive eating disorder and they need to know your weight to make sure you're safe or, you know, all of these sort of medical necessity things are pretty few and far between, right? So for the most part, doctors don't need to weigh you and they certainly don't need to weigh you every time unless you have one of those conditions we're talking about. So I would really encourage you to talk to the doctor about it and make sure that the number on the scale is not a trigger that's in your face because that just adds to the challenges you're already facing with intuitive eating and you know you don't need one more thing to trigger you. One last point I want to make is that it's also very normal to have the weight loss ideal hanging on for a while, especially when you're just starting to try to make peace with food in your body. So when you're in that place and you still think you want to lose weight, that's still in the back of your mind, that's understandable. Have compassion for yourself and recognize that research consistently shows that over the long term, the easiest way to gain weight is to try to lose weight. So I'll say that again, the easiest way to gain weight is to try to lose weight. That's because only a minuscule percentage, like between 2 and 5% or less, of people who attempt weight loss will ever lose weight and keep it off for more than five years. So for the 95 to 98% of people for whom intentional weight loss doesn't work, the vast, vast majority, you know, about a third of those folks will end up back at their starting weight and the other two thirds will end up at a higher weight than they started out. So you're statistically a hell of a lot more likely to gain weight over time from any attempts at weight loss than you are to lose it. And by the way, for that minuscule percentage of people, you know, that are supposedly weight loss success stories, they do it through disordered means that would be diagnosed as an eating disorder in someone who started out in a thinner body. So that's really worth highlighting. It's taking over their lives. It's governing their entire world. It's not balanced and it's not good for their mental health and in many cases not good for their physical health either. So as Amber Karn said in last week's episode, you know, people who are the supposed quote unquote success stories don't just watch their weight, they micromanage the ever loving shit out of their weight, right? It comes at a tremendous cost to their lives and their well-being. And my colleague Glennis Oyston, who was on the podcast way back in episode 49, was one of those supposed success stories and she had the experience of her hair falling out, she was tired all the time. She had out of control binges and she couldn't think about anything other than food. It ruled her life. And which again, you know, all of those things are eating disorder symptoms. So, you know, she was supposedly the success story, but she had these really terrible symptoms. And that's why she ultimately gave up the dieting because she said these were the worst years of her adult life. The pursuit of weight loss was robbing her of so much joy and so much life. And I've worked with other folks who were those supposed success stories, too, like in my online course and my private coaching program. And, you know, if they really liked being those supposed success stories, those unicorns and that two to five percent of people who can maintain long term weight loss, then why would they be coming to me? Right. Why would they need help with intuitive eating and making peace with food if their efforts at suppressing their weight weren't taking a huge toll on their lives and their relationship with food? Right. So just because someone is a quote unquote success story at weight loss doesn't mean they're happy and doesn't mean they're healthy. And in fact, 
it's usually the opposite. It usually means I'd be willing to bet for pretty much everyone who's in that supposed success story camp, it's taking over their life and it's not making them any happier and oftentimes causing utter misery as well as health problems. So I hope that helps. I hope that gives you a little more fodder to push back against that weight loss ideal in your mind and helps you just navigate this idea of being in your friend's wedding and sort of any weddings in general that you're in going forward to be able to think about those systemic pressures that are put onto people surrounding the wedding industry and what you might want to push back on because it's the same kind of bullshit that the diet industry is throwing at us and we can also decide to opt out of that. So to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And if you want a whole library of answers from me about the nuts and bolts of intuitive eating, plus the chance to ask me whatever question you want anytime, you can join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. So I just got this great testimonial from one of my course participants named Allie, who says, the course is fantastic. I can tell that a lot of work went into aligning the modules with relevant and inspiring content, and it's been a huge help to me. I also like that I feel like I'm really getting what I was hoping for. It's exactly as advertised on Food Psych, and I feel like I'm getting my money's worth, which I only mentioned because there are other programs like this that are far more expensive, and I'm so grateful I have access to this content. I adore the Facebook group as well. How lovely, helpful, and kind each and every member is astounds me. And what she says is true. You know, our course Facebook group really is full of such amazing people who are so supportive and there for each other because, you know, this intuitive eating journey can be really challenging and support is so key in helping you recover from the diet mentality and just make peace with your body in the midst of diet culture. Plus, I'm in the Facebook group answering questions and providing guidance along with my wonderful staff. And I'm doing the monthly Q&As where I answer any question you have. So you really get a huge amount of community support and individual attention in this course. If you're ready to become an intuitive eater and leave diet culture behind once and for all, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. And 10% of proceeds are still going to hurricane relief efforts now through at least the end of October. So when you join the course, you'll also be helping people in Puerto Rico and Texas and Florida and abroad rebuild their lives from the devastating effects of the hurricanes. And I just gave a big chunk for September to hurricane relief efforts in Puerto Rico via global giving. So I'm feeling really great about that and so grateful to everyone who purchased my online products and was able to contribute to that. So thank you all. And if you're interested in joining the course or learning more about my other services, head over to christyharrison.com slash course. We're brought to you today by M.M. Lafleur. M.M. Lafleur is a women's workwear brand whose mission is to take the work out of dressing for work by offering luxurious, pragmatic clothing and personal styling. The best way to experience M.M. Lafleur is through their bento box. All you have to do is take a quick online survey and an MM stylist will work with you one-on-one to create a personalized box, including four to six wardrobe staples and a few accessories as well. They offer both straight sizes and plus sizes, which is what I really love most about them because I think all clothing companies should do this and it's so important to support the ones that do. So I'm really psyched to support them and to have them supporting the podcast. 
Once your bento box arrives, you'll have four days to try everything on at home before deciding what to keep. You won't be charged anything up front, and you'll only pay for the items you keep. Shipping is even free both ways, so you're never just paying to try on clothes. And this is not a subscription service, so there's no commitment. To try a bento yourself, visit mmbento.com. That's mmbento.com. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Lisa Pearl. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. Wow. Right off the bat, huh? Hi, Kristen. <laughs> Hi, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be here and, and happy to be sharing. So I, I knew you were going to ask me this question, as you have asked others, and I really am happy to share that story, and I will. But I was thinking about just the phrase, relationship with food, and I'd like to actually take a moment and just talk about the phrasing of relationship with food, because I think it it needs to be said how that phrasing actually originated. And I know you love the use of language, both you know application and implications. And so I'd like to share that with you, unless you might already know. Oh my God, that's amazing. No one's ever brought that up when I've asked this question. And I think it's so important. Yeah. And I have some thoughts about that too, because people have attacked that use of language occasionally, not people on the podcast, but people from outside, because they've said it's impossible to have a relationship with an inanimate object. And so, you know, I'd be curious to hear your responses to that as well as sort of the history of it. Like, yeah, where did this come from, this idea of relationship with food? Yeah. So, so we're going to go back a ways. And uh, when I was a young, newly minted dietitian, I was taught a lot of the, the similar techniques that many dietitians were in that day, which is behavioral change techniques that incorporated CBT and a little bit of motivational enhancement types of things. And basically, we're taught that to then educate people so that we could correct their eating habits, right? And then along with that, we learned assessment techniques for body composition and weight percentages and nutrient analysis and all of that. So, you know, I was skilled and licensed, kind of locked and loaded to ask people what they ate and then somehow use these wily skills to create behavioral change and health. And I'm sure you can imagine that it didn't really work that well. But <laughs> before, before I could do much damage, I found myself amongst some really thoughtful psychotherapists at Boston Children's Hospital who had been trained over at the Stone Center at Wellesley College in this new psychotherapeutic technique called relational theory. And so through them, I learned a lot about the fundamental importance of connections in relationship and that the relationships we hold with others, not only are those instrumental, but the relationship that we hold with ourselves. And so as a new nutritionist working with eating disorders, this made total sense to me, right? And I stopped asking clients so often about what they ate in their 24-hour recalls, and I started to use that language. Can you describe your relationship to food? And then later on, when I was taking their, their developmental history, I would ask them to describe their relationship to their body. And I know this sounds like a really simple shift, but I think it was important because the approach and the perspective opened the conversation, both for me and for my clients, in a broader and deeper way. And inherent in the phrasing of the question, relationship with food, is the idea that you can observe the relationship between yourself and how you eat. 
or yourself and how you feel towards your eating disorder, right? So it begins the separation to say that you are not your eating disorder, right? You are maybe protecting yourself from your eating disorder, or maybe the eating disorder has ways of trying to mask what you're feeling, but that's not you. And it just made sense for me as a dietitian, as a starting point for my clients. And I never heard of anyone else using this kind of relational framework with food. And I hadn't read anything about it, but it was also 1983 and the eating disorder resources were pretty limited. But I had the the benefit of the Stone Center right here in the Boston community. And I was learning so much from them. And I'm sure if we went back and we spoke to the folks there now, the scholars would say, yes, of course you have a relationship with food. And I bet the IFS folks now would say, yes, this is how someone develops an eating disorder. They develop this protective part of the self. So I think that's the origins. It came from that period of time. And I can tell you that every dietetic and social work intern that was assigned to me for the next decade at Children's was really indoctrinated into this concept of relational theory for eating disorders. And at the same time, I had the brilliant good luck to be working with Bill Bennett, who had written The Diet is Dilemma with Joel Gurren. And Joel's mom was my supervisor. And you know, they were just so much into the science of why we needed to move towards body acceptance and diversity in size and health at every size. So that's the back phrase of the story and a little bit about, you know, what I was coming into the work with. Wow, that is phenomenal to hear. I Because, you know, I've been doing this podcast for four and a half years and starting pretty much every episode with tell me about your relationship with food growing up and never knowing where that phrase came from. It just felt like it was sort of in the ether. But yeah, you were one of the first people to use it. And independently, I stumbled into you as a mentor and to do supervision with you. So like, I feel like this is very serendipitous that it was like, yeah, the universe pointed me to the person who maybe invented that phrase. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I, you know, there may have been other people around the country using it, but it definitely lends itself right to the work. And certainly I wasn't getting anywhere charging after, you know, these young adolescents and to saying, tell me what you ate yesterday. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. You had to take a new approach. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, that's so interesting. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the idea. I mean, we'll talk about your actual relationship with food growing up in a minute, but your thoughts on the idea that, you know, some people have this visceral reaction against the idea of having a relationship with food. Like I've had emails from some people and they they were usually emails that were sort of negative or critical about particular ideas in the podcast in the first place, but emails from other dietitians being like, by the way, you can't have a relationship with food. It's an inanimate object. You know, what are, what are you doing talking to people about their relationship with food? And I just think that's such an interesting position to be coming from, to be sort of in denial about a relationship with food that that could exist. I think it's a really interesting question. Some of me, some part of me thinks that there's a backlash there that we can talk about because I think whenever you're creating new language, right, people are going to kind of be stuck with that. It may also represent people who are still really blended with their eating disorder or their definition of self. And our clients certainly know when we we ask them, tell me about your relationship food, they, they know what we're talking about and they can answer. But, you know, maybe if we really wanted to 
tease this apart, what we want to understand is tell me a little bit about how you're relating to yourself and what that means in terms of how you take care of yourself with food, how you think about your body, how you think about managing your body and your your needs. But, you know, that feels a little bit like you're really splitting hairs, right? And I think people get it when you say, tell me about your relationship with food. And the other thing that I think the question does very nicely is it sets you up for mindfulness, for being able to observe your thoughts and observe your behaviors and to be observing them from the authentic self that really does want recovery, right? And wants to be able to find a way of better self-care. So works for me, works for a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) Works for me too. Yeah. There might be better phrasing. I'm not, I don't know, but I thought you might be interested in the origins of that. Totally. And I think it is fantastic phrasing because of everything you mentioned, you know, the idea that you can sort of witness your thoughts and not have to be identified with them is so central to recovery, right? And to just sort of feeling good and grounded as a human in general. And I think that maybe you're hitting something on the head there with the idea of people being blended with their eating disorder or with whatever ideas they have about food as like, thinking that that's the absolute truth and there's no separation between themselves and their thoughts. I think it's harder to recognize there is a relationship if you don't see a separation, right? It's like, well, what do you mean relationship? I am these thoughts. Like this is, I just eat food and, you know, that's it or whatever. Right. And, you know, I, I think for recovery, most people would say that the ultimate experience in recovery is feeling like you can integrate, right? That you can be able to recognize these different aspects of yourself and integrate them into a whole that can feel like your life has meaning and purpose and that you can make choices, right? Choice is probably the most important feature of mental health. Absolutely. That's very well said. Yeah. Well, so with that amazing backstory then, (laughs) tell me about your relationship with food growing up. (laughs) Oh boy. Okay. So, you know, of course I want to make this entertaining, but it's a little dark. So I'm sorry about that. I was born into some pretty unusual circumstances. I think my dad had been in a plane crash. He was an old World War II pilot and he had been in a plane crash and suffered a spinal cord injury. So my mom was pregnant with me and she had seven other children at home and my dad was failing in the hospital and when she gave birth to me, she brought him home at the same time to die. Oh, so yeah, so he was, you know, in pretty cachectic shape and, and on a continuous morphine drip and It was a really defining moment in my family, right? My seven older sibs were traumatized and they had yet another little sister to share what little emotional currency was left. So it was tough. My mom was really overwhelmed. We had a neighbor who recommended that she get in touch with this physician who had just stopped teaching at Harvard Med and had taken up a natural health practice. And so my mom sought him out and with his guidance, she was able to get my dad off of morphine and nourish him back to health. So this is the beginning, right, of the the story that we would all live in this family that through nutrition, you could create miracles. So really, really highly valued. 
And there was a day that my my um, sisters and brothers tell me that was sort of like the day of darkness in our family when my mother, convinced that sugar was the white devil, went through the cupboards and dumped all of their favorite cookies and candies and sugary snacks into the trash. Oh. And... <laughs> So I was, you know, as an infant, I didn't experience this, but everyone else did. And of course, you know, my siblings all run the whole spectrum of weirdness with food, right? Mm -hmm. I can imagine. (laughs) And so I lived, you know, that that experience of deprivation around sweets and the overvaluation of food for providing all kinds of emotional and and physical care. But I, you know, I was a, (laughs) I guess I was one of those kids who just you know, determined and found a way to really develop the relationship with my neighbors. And I had all of the mothers on my little street buying cookies and candy for me by the time I was five. (laughs) So I ate really well at home. Well, we would consider it well now, but back then it was just weird. We had whole grain, organic, homemade bread, homemade yogurt. Yogurt wasn't even in the stores yet. We had, you know, a little shrimp cocktail glass full of supplements every morning that we should take. And, um, (laughs) and yeah, this is back in the day when people were eating, you know, marshmallow fluff and Jiffy on, what was that bread? Wonder bread. And then we'd have hostess Twinkies, you know, or a cupcake in their lunchbox. So, I just ate these really weird foods and then I would go to my friends and I would eat, you know, all the junk that I could. And when I got a little older and started finding ways to make money, I spent every penny I earned on candy. (laughs) So I guess in my own way, I had balance. Yeah, you found that sweetness that you were (laughs) craving, right? (laughs) I did. And I found the relationships too, right? Which was also very helpful. So I thought it was all working out pretty well. And the only time I really started to struggle with with body image or weight was during high school when I was a gymnast. And man, I, I can still call, remember this coach. She used to weigh us all in before we had a meet. And we had a weight in her mind was the correct weight for us to compete at. And if we didn't make that weight, we couldn't compete. And it it devastated, you know, a couple of my friends developed bulimia and, you know, it was their way of dealing with the weigh-ins. I, again, I guess just a bit of a rebel. I just didn't care that much. So it didn't phase me, but I knew it was wrong, right? I just had that gut feeling like this is unjust and it's ruining my friendship with my friends who were becoming completely consumed with food. And then... You know, in college, I had a roommate who was a dancer who struggled with anorexia. So I had some exposure to eating disorders, both in close relationships and in roommates and things like that. And for myself, it was more just about why doesn't my body fit in or why are people telling me my body should be a certain way? A lot of shaming, you know, around my body. And because my dad was never able to walk after his accident, He used to be a really physical guy, very athletic, and he just shut down that side of himself and he didn't really want anyone else to be physical either. And so there was, you know, a devaluing of any kind of physical athleticism, pride, anything like that. So I think I felt more shame in my body than I felt 
a drivenness to lose weight. I, I just didn't have that obsessive kind of capacity to want to push myself that far, or maybe even, or maybe I didn't have as much pain. I shouldn't say obsession until my dietetic internship (laughs) when everyone around me was dieting. And I I felt like I was some kind of pariah or something that I wasn't on a diet. I literally, everyone, all of the, you know, the mentors in that internship were, were on some kind of a diet. And so I got sucked in then, but not for very long. It just, you know, it, it went against the grain for me thinking that food was really an important part of health and probably love. Yeah. Mm. So you you sort of got into it for a little while, but then you backed off or? You know, I remember counting calories and writing down your food intake. I think we were supposed to, believe it or not. We had a few classes like that too, where we had to do that even, you know, seven years ago or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And so I could tell my brain was just going to this really, you know, kind of obsessive place and I hated it. So it just wasn't worth it. That's amazing that you had that sense of self that you could say that, you know, you could be that separate from it and say like, this doesn't make me feel good. This isn't worth it. Because I think my experience with that stuff and a lot of clients that I've seen, it's like if there's something feels off about it, but it feels like there's something wrong with me. So I need to fix it. So I need to figure this out. Right. Instead of like, you know what, this is, this is not making me feel good and this is not worthwhile, which now on the other side of recovery, I feel that, you know, I feel like I'll never go back to that because of how terrible it made me feel. But like, in the moment of getting sucked in, it was kind of like, ooh, I have to master this. Yeah. And I I absolutely was staring down the tunnel of that. I could see that happening. But, you know, th- I think there were a few things going on for me at the time that were very helpful. I was living with a woman who thought it was crazy. And so she and I would talk a bit about that. And I hadn't really intended to go into dietetics. And so the whole thing was a little odd for me to begin with. So I I wasn't sure I bought into it intellectually. And then the idea of getting smaller, I was already, I wouldn't say thin privilege, but I was only five feet tall when I went to high school. And I was constantly sort of ridiculed for being small. So getting smaller didn't seem like it was really going to be a good idea on some level. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, yeah. No, honestly, it could just be the grace of God, right? I just, I I think I I dodged a bullet. Yeah. I mean, I wonder too what what it was about dietetics that sort of, you know, how did you stumble into the field in the first place? Well, that's, that's right. Stumble. You know, I'd gone to college thinking that I would go to medical school and when I got into medical school, I was really excited and I called home to tell my parents and my mother cried and my father called me a charlatan and a traitor. So (gasps) remember that, you know, they had been saved by natural health, which meant that they had demonized the Western medical establishment. And so Columbia was not going to happen if I wanted to maintain that relationship. And so I, I just, applied to one of the nutrition graduate programs that included a dietetic internship. Honestly, I don't even think I knew what a dietetic internship was (laughs) and went in that direction because at that point in time, there really wasn't another way to go. You know, there wasn't another more holistic, integrative health MD kind of program out there. 
Right. Right. So it, being an MD meant Western medicine and everything that your parents were sort of railing against. Exactly. Exactly. I still don't think I've caught up on my immunizations, Christy. <laughs> <laughs> the first physician I ever saw was in college. And I know this is off topic, but he was a gynecologist and his name was Dr. Clapp. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Some people's names are just so perfect for their <laughs> professions. It's like, really? Really? Your name is Dr. Clapp. Oh my God. So yeah, Western medicine was not a thing in your family. Did dietetics seem like the sort of natural alternative then? Was that like the path that was your parents were more approving of? Right. So that's what they were thinking. And I was thinking that as well, but it, you know, it didn't really turn out that way. But I learned a lot, you know, kind of moving into Korea, but also to finishing out my relationship with food history as a, a young woman. After I finished up and I was working at a job before I started working with eating disorders, the woman who was my boss over at Harvard Vanguard Hospital, I think it was called. Anyways, Carrie Strickland was her name. And she said, hey, you know, before you go and work with eating disorders, you should check out this program called Feeding Ourselves. And so I signed up. Oh, it was just brilliant. It was mindfulness and intuitive eating with a bit of uh, Susie Orbach's fat as a feminist issue thrown in. And it just opened my eyes to a completely different way of being in my body and in my life. I loved the mindfulness aspect. The intuitive eating actually brought me to such a a new place of pleasure with food after my dietetic internship, all of that rigidity and counting and everything. And I absolutely drank the Kool-Aid and believed that this was the way that people would heal from eating disorders as well. Mm, that's amazing to be exposed to something like that so early. Yeah. I had great mentors and women who were so wise all along the way for me. I, I just, I can't tell you how meaningful and generous people have been for me in my career. So I hope I can give that back. You really do. I mean, I will say you are such a mentor to so many people in this field and have been so generous with me and my colleagues. Like, I think it's, you're absolutely giving it back and I hope to give it back one day myself. Yeah, well, you are right now. <laughs> I, I, you know, the mentorship becomes reciprocal, you know, at a certain point, which is just fabulous. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think it's, we're all in this together, you know, and if, if we can sort of support each other in this work, that's what keeps us going, right? Because it's can be very challenging work, this kind of going against the grain and helping people recover in diet culture is not easy. Yeah, exactly. I would love to hear about how your career developed from there. What was it like in that in those early days of treating eating disorders? Because it wasn't it wasn't as prevalent as it is now, right? With treatment centers in every major city, it was probably much more scarce. You know, I, that's a good question. I don't actually know what the incidence was. I know that by the time I arrived on the the unit that was dedicated to eating disorders at Children's Hospital in Boston, the census was anywhere between fifteen and twenty adolescents at a time, or kids, and so. It was a significant number, but you're right, there weren't as many programs around and certainly people being able to diagnose folks who were struggling with food was much more limited as well. So yeah, I'm not sure what the incidence actually was. So, you know, how I got there was kind of interesting. I It was back during my internship 
there was a young man on the psychiatric service at one of the hospitals I was working at who had anorexia and the director of the internship asked if any of us had experience with eating disorders and would go over and do an assessment. So I ended up doing the assessment and then presenting at Grand Rounds for that hospital. And of course, you know, as a, an earnest young dietitian, I had done lots of research and stumbled upon the Keys study that was done during World War II. And so I presented the study as relevant to the effects of starvation on the body and mind in eating disorders. It just happened that there was someone in the audience who was the director of psychiatry for Harvard Med. And so he asked me to do grand rounds there. And then through that process and connection, they found me a spot over at Children's Hospital to do part research on sociocultural factors influencing the development of eating disorders and then also do the clinical consultations. And when I first came onto the unit there, you asked me what it looked like. So food did not exist for the most part. The kids were there for an average length of stay of six months. And they were under a protocol where they basically were removed of anything that they came in with, their clothes, their special teddy bears, anything. And they had to earn back what they wanted through eating. But if they didn't eat everything that was put in front of them, they had to eat the equivalent in supplements. So almost every client on this unit was on somewhere between supplements a day and they weren't eating. It was horrible, right? And if they didn't ensure they were tube fed. So was honestly, I have goosebumps even thinking about it. And I think I was there less than a week when I walked into the director's office, Dr. Hopper, and I said, this is just wrong. It has to change or I'm not staying. <laughs> and, you know, when you're 22, you can say that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to lose. Yeah. <laughs> you no, know you don't know. And I just didn't know hierarchies that well. So fortunately, he was as open and gracious and supportive as he could be. And within months, we had changed the whole protocol we had implemented food, gotten rid of supplements, allowed the patients to have their dignity again with their clothes and their stuffed animals. We brought in families as partners and stopped accusing them as being the reason why their child had an eating disorder. And over time, we added body image groups and mindfulness and movement therapy and really, really pushed to promote nutrition therapy as integral to the treatment just as psychotherapy was. And we we worked on the whole concept of the multidisciplinary team. And within a couple of years, our recidivism, recidivism rate was dropping, right? It was going from 80% of people readmitting after leaving down to 25%. So it was working, right? It was really, it was working. And so we started to, I remember writing protocols for other places and helping the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospitals. We write their protocols to include a nutritionist and just all of the different members of the team. We brought in all of the relational theory and it just, it changed the whole landscape of how eating, eating disorders were being treated. And at that point in time, there was so little out there for resources. We were doing it all just from our gut and from, we just knew what was happening wasn't working, right? So I was just in this really wonderful bubble and it was during my 20s and, you know, if I do kind of a retrospective nutshell kind of thing, my 20s were just 
crazy exciting. I was learning as much as I could. I I was receiving incredible supervision from the folks at Children's and they were so open to to trying new things, right? And so I was just searching for anything that was going to promote recovery and help nutrition therapy be more effective. And so Honestly, I probably have a PhD in graduate certificates and master's degrees. You know, I took classes, workshops, read books. I did different types of psychotherapy, family therapy, coaching. I did expressive movement, <laughs> yoga therapy, intuitive eating, mindfulness training. Like, right? You just you're growing and growing, and you're just like the sponge trying to figure it all out. And I, you know, I'm not alone. There are a lot of other people, I'm sure, who are doing the same thing. You sort of have to in the eating disorder field, right? And in this field of helping people in their relationships with food in general, it's like not taught really in most programs, even today. Exactly. We're going to get to that. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, there's so much more now, which is phenomenal. And yeah, but, you know, back then, there just weren't that many people doing what what I was doing, what this group was trying to do at, at the hospital. So, you know, that was going on and it was working and it was exciting. And then, you know, in my 30s, I was, I had a family at that point and I was just trying to keep everything afloat, right? Just <laughs> trying to keep it all going. I was still really passionate about the prevention of eating disorders. And so I was consulting at schools and writing curriculums on prevention and speaking any chance I got. I kind of had to quit working at the hospital because I couldn't deal with the time in the commute. But I opened a private practice and brought in as many dietitians as I could to not only help with the overwhelming referral load, but also just to kind of create my own bubble again, right? It wasn't, you know, the work that we were doing made sense to us and to to our clients, and it was effective, but it really wasn't embraced that well in the community. There were still a lot of people who were resistant to the concept of a nutritionist being more than just an educator. And a lot of people were resistant to the whole idea that you could have health at every size. And I remember in my early 40s feeling, I guess I just felt pooped, right? I felt like I was beating the drum and advocating that for this and really trying to push my agenda for so long. And it felt like dieting was getting worse. Body shaming was getting worse. My friends in the Hayes and the Napa communities were really up in arms about this whole horrible announcement by the Surgeon General that there was a war on obesity, as if obese people weren't people. Oh my God, it was terrible. I had two teenage daughters at that point who were you know, I was trying so hard to teach them body confidence and size acceptance. And it was against this monstrous backdrop of a culture telling them that body shape was the determinant of health and happiness. So in my early 40s, I felt like, oh my God, are we losing? And then, you know, and I still had my little bubble, my tribe of people in my group that were like-minded and I worked with phenomenal psychotherapists and dietitians, and we were supporting each other and teaching each other. And I'm so glad that we persevered, right? Because our clients were the proof and they were getting better. So despite all of the 
body bashing and the shame and the increasing, what felt like an increasing incidence of disordered eating in the culture, we just put our heads down. We kept going. And somewhere towards the end of my 40s, I remember that it started to become clear that all of these other nutritionists, dietitians were popping up around the country and having a voice. And thank God they were writing. And Evelyn Triboli, God love her, she was making this impact that people were really taking on and embracing intuitive eating. And the Hayes movement was starting to really, you know, gather traction. And it felt like the skies were opening and clearing. And it felt like hope was, you know, coming back into my core. And, you know, and I think that you've been in practice since that point. And it's just, it's been amazing, right? It's amazing to meet these dietitians that are coming from all different areas of the country and they are so on board, right? They healed themselves through size acceptance and through intuitive eating and they're ready to take on the work. My heart just is so excited and full and happy and joyful. Oh, oh my God. I'm so glad that you persisted through that that time because that must have felt so dark. And then to see that like it had an impact, right? That like right. the work you were doing and the work that other people in the same vein were doing allowed Evelyn Triboli and Elise Rush to be exposed to that, to spread the word on a larger scale with intuitive eating. Because yeah. I, I mean, I remember talking to them for the podcast and they said that it was in like People magazine and it suddenly sort of hit the mainstream in this way that no anti-diet work had really done before, maybe. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and so now I, I've got a much broader tribe of, of people and, and people like you who have the capacity to go out there and build podcasts and have command of the language in such a beautiful way that you can write and create and spread this very meaningful way of living in your life. That's so countercultural, right? But the message is getting out there. And I didn't even realize how hard I was pushing against the tide until recently I had a client who came in who had been dealing with some binge eating and I had been working with him on intuitive eating and he was making progress after 20 years of not making progress. And he was actually for the first time starting to feel hopeful and feel like things were shifting and we we're both really excited about it. And he came in one day and told me that his psychotherapist had told me that intuitive eating was counterindicated for someone with his in his situation. Oh, no. And I felt all of that, you know, all of those battle scars just kind of came forward. And I realized that is what I had been carrying with me for all those years, right? All of that armor to keep going. And, um, you know, I, I called the psychotherapist and as it turned out, he never said that, but still that was the kind of thing that I would hear all the time. And I don't hear it so much anymore, which is really good. Yeah, it's it's really, I mean, it's amazing how much progress has been made and how much we still have a long way to go, but it's like there are people now who get it. There are yeah. 
a lot of therapists and dietitians, especially working in the field of eating disorders, right? And and increasingly too in other fields. But like, I think eating disorders has been sort of the vanguard of the anti-diet movement in terms of dietitians and therapists, at least, and spreading to physicians as well, yeah, and psychiatrists and all that. But you know, I think it is growing, it is spreading, and there are still lots of people out there whose minds we need to change. But it's not. It's not this uphill battle that I'm sure it was back then. Right. And I think people don't even realize it's part of their unconscious, right? It's part of that landscape that's they're supposed to be thin. So they may even speak the non-diet health at every size language, but they still haven't really looked at that core belief that has been with them since they were born, right? And so there is still a lot of work to be done. There's no question about it, but it is a thousand times better. You know, I, thinking back to a couple of decades ago when I twice approached the academy to develop a practice group for a nutritionist who specialized in, in treating eating disorders. And both times they declined saying that it was a psychiatric illness and that only people who have psychiatric vulnerability are going to have problems with diets. And that it wasn't, you know, there wasn't going to be enough people who would be of interested to participate. And I know, you know, this is 20 years ago, and I already had 30 people just in Boston who wanted to join that group, right? So I think our whole field is transforming, right? Because of people like you, there is this, you know, there's a surge of people who are coming forward and really shifting the way in which we approach all kinds of issues that have to do with body image and size and health. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm glad to be a part of this new wave, you know, and I think it's it's only growing. Yeah. I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts, you know, around the concept of health at every size and fat acceptance and how that came into your work with eating disorders and intuitive eating. Why you think that that is a model that has to be present in treating eating disorders as opposed to the traditional weight paradigm of like, you know, you need to recover to this certain weight and no no higher, right? Or you'll you'll recover into within body, but you know, if you're in a larger body and you're your recovery has to involve weight loss. You know, these messages that we still unfortunately sometimes hear from some eating disorder treatment centers even. Yeah. So I kind of don't understand how you could do it any other way because the science is just really clear. Right? So, you know, they've measured dopamine levels in the brain. And as soon as you start to think about dieting and restricting your food intake, your dopamine level drops and you start craving food. So how does it make sense that someone who's dysregulated in their appetite would create any kind of therapeutic frame that includes weight loss when it immediately dysregulates them neurochemically? I don't get that. And then if we add in the whole aspect of how shame kind of creates this disconnection, right, from yourself and from others, right, people who are too ashamed to go out and have the pleasure of going to the beach or going for a walk. The way in which shame immobilizes and paralyzes people from being able to actually do what they want to do, right? And that shame is coming from judgment, right? That they have within themselves and around. And so as soon as you tell someone, yeah, well, you know, the only way you're going to really improve your health or 
recover from your eating disorder is lose weight, you've made this huge obstacle to them ever actually achieving that. I mean, I'm sure there's a, a nice pithy way to say it, but I just don't get how you can do it any other way. <laughs> Yeah, that's been my experience as well. Like, you know, just when I was starting in the field and starting to go to eating disorder conferences and look into the literature and all that, it was really clear and eye-opening to see how much health at every size was indicated by the research and how I would see presentations at conferences around the health at every size approach or why the weight management paradigm wasn't effective in treating people with eating disorders, why you need to help people recover their body image to help recover fully from their eating disorder. And yet, in practice, I was seeing, you know, at eating disorder treatment centers, the opposite, right? People saying, oh, this person, why aren't they losing weight in recovery from binge eating disorder? They should be losing weight, so we're going to restrict their food. The stuff that just sort of boggled my mind, even as a new clinician coming into the space, being like, wait, I thought that the science said this and you're doing that. That's weird, you know? And so it just, it became very clear sort of right away and trying to do right in this field and immerse myself in the, the research. But I think, I don't know, maybe there's this entrenched quality of diet culture and the diet mentality that just touches eating disorder treatment, just like it touches every other aspect of our medical field, right? That people have weight bias, like strong internalized weight bias that comes from diet culture and living in this fat phobic society. And that doesn't go away just because you become a director of an eating disorder treatment center, right? So right. you're sort of bringing with you all of that internalized bias unless you do the work to really unpack it. I couldn't agree more. And I do feel for my clients who come in and say, I really want to stop my eating disordered symptoms, but first I need to lose weight. I mean, I I do feel like they have been just indoctrinated into the the weight bias and they really believe that they will feel better and everything will be better, you know, for them if they lose weight. But the the truth is that weight loss doesn't necessarily equal improved body image. And that science is out there. And what we, I think, as facilitators and guides and, and counselors need to be able to do is really understand the pain that our client is in and how they have developed this, you know, protective part from the the shame and the sadness and the grief they feel like that their body isn't good enough. And how do we begin to address that with them? How do we help them find ways of feeling better in their body and moving towards self-care, but first honoring the part of them that has been really busy dieting to try to make them feel better. It's never black and white, right? That part of them that's been dieting has really been the part that's trying so hard with really bad advice and tools to feel better. We just don't have that kind of technology or, or ability. The, the human body is built to thrive and eat. <laughs> and um, maintain its set range. Yeah, yeah, it's not built to stop. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's such an important point to kind of keep reminding people of is that 
this part of you that is trying to diet or trying to engage in eating disorder behaviors or whatever is coming from a place of trying to protect yourself and fit in or find a sense of belonging or find love or all these things that we really all want that are sort of core human needs, right? And and that, you know, a fat phobic society that tells people you're only going to belong if you look a certain way, if you fit into this certain narrow beauty ideal. Right of course, creates the conditions for people to want to diet and change their bodies and do whatever they can to fit into that ideal because the desire for belonging and and love and happiness and success and all of it is so human and so natural. Absolutely. And it goes back to the relational theory and connections and wanting to fit in and wanting to be, you know, lovable and be a part of things and have relationships. And honestly, who doesn't? And, you know, if you're perceiving that your body is creating disconnection, that you're a deviant from what is acceptable. You're looking for ways that you can fit in and protect yourself from that kind of pain. Mm, absolutely. So how do you think those ideas translate into like the prevention and the healing from eating disorders? How do you sort of use those ideas in your counseling? And then also, how can we kind of create conditions in society to help prevent eating disorders from this perspective of compassion? Mm. Well, compassion is huge in this, right? And um, that's a really big question. I, I feel like folks have written, including myself, some prevention curriculums for kids to use in their health classes at school. And I think a lot of them are very good and include Health at Every Size. Kathy Cater has written a, a beautiful curriculum that she has been at for at least 20 years, maybe more. The Healthy Bodies curriculum. Yep. I've written curriculums that are integrated into K through eight schools at, you know, both in science and in the English classes. And, you know, it's just, I think just kind of like the anti-smoking campaign, <laughs> I think we need to get out there and really go at the health at every size and kids will take it on, right? They get it, right? They, they understand what bullying is. Bullyproof, you know, is another great curriculum that also includes some, you know, size acceptance work. And in the counseling sessions, oh boy, you know, it's woven into everything we talk about because perspective and body image and the way that you see yourself, the way you feel about yourself, the way you think other people see you, that's all a part of recovery, right? In conversations. And that's all happening in the context of a culture. And so there's a lot of, for me, I, I call it getting on my soapbox <laughs> to about the culture and really encouraging people to to develop that strength, to be a rebel and be com comfortable and at ease and accepting of their body. And, you know, look, beneath the surface for lots of things. I think we're right now living in a political situation where, you know, this is all relevant as well. And yeah, so, I, you know, I think there's a sociological component to this as well as, you know, a, a personal individual component. Yeah. Not sure that really answers your question. It's a big question. Well, and I think <laughs> it is a big question, <laughs> but I think it's it's really important to highlight that too, that it's a sociological issue because I think some 
you know, eating disorder treatment and therapy, if it sort of just ends at the personal, you know, quote unquote, personal responsibility or something of the person to heal themselves and doesn't look at the context in which all of this was created, in which the disordered eating developed, then it's not complete, really, because it it makes the person responsible for their own suffering when, in fact, the responsibility for the suffering lies in the society, right? It lies in in the myths that we're all taught to believe about body size and worthiness and then get internalized. And so really people shouldn't be blamed for having internalized those messages. It's very understandable to have people internalizing those messages, right? It's absolutely. And, and, you know, people certainly have some agency and can help themselves heal and can get help and do things to, to be able to heal and bounce back from that. So that's, that's important as well, but it's like, it's not all on the individual. It's also, we have to look at the society and we have to look at ways people can sort of keep themselves safe within society. You know, like recovering into a fat phobic society is extremely hard. It's a, it's a huge challenge. And so arming people with tools to navigate that I think is really important. Yeah, incredibly. So a couple of things. One is there's just a lot more out there now to support people in their recovery. There's more podcasts. There's lots of stuff online. You know, I know there's, of course, the negative stuff too, but there's some great online resources like yours, you know, in your podcast. There, there's so many more resources for people so they're not alone and they are recovering into a community that gets it. So that's phenomenal, right? And we have to, you know, continue to to make use of that. And um, I don't know if this is a, a good time to mention that we're going to, we're starting one of the first eating disorder graduate programs and in internships connected to a university. So the more folks that we can train, I think the better. And so a few years ago, I approached Dr. Lisa Brown over at Simmons College about developing a dietetic internship that would specialize in eating disorders and then a graduate certificate program for dietitians and social workers for eating disorders as well. And all of that is taking flight. You know that I invited Basi Evans along to the party and she's, you know, brilliant and incredible. And so this is just going to be a top-notch program. It's so exciting. Yeah. I'm curious to hear more about that because A, there just really aren't enough programs like this out there already. So I'm glad you've started one and that it's sort of pioneering. This would be the first. That's amazing. Oh my <laughs> God. Let's hope this for soon, but yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, hopefully you can do sort of an evaluation or pilot study or something on this that can help other people implement a similar program maybe. Yeah. So we've had our first trial run through and then, um, this fall, we have our first class, full class. And so they'll go through the, the classes and then do the internship in the spring. And then hopefully starting in the fall of 2018, we'll have the integrated program with social work. So it's that's the goal. And yeah, Simmons College, Boston, got to love them. They, they jumped right on it and found a way to work their magic through the academy and get it all accredited and approved and fired up. That's so incredible. Yeah. I mean, it just really cements Boston as such a hub for all of this kind of learning. I think there's something, you know, I've talked with some other Bostonians about this, like there's something in the water there where just people are, you know, which I think is you, honestly. A lot of people have said, oh, it's Lisa Pearl. <laughs> oh, 
I hope so. <laughs> Those battle scars aren't for, for nothing. But you know what? I have to say it, it really isn't me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to be a part of it and I appreciate the compliment, but there's a bunch of people here that have just really been on the ground and together and with me and learning. I mean, I have been in a supervision group now for well over 25 years with the same people and you, and I still am learning from them. Right. And it's good, you know, and I, I don't know how many other places around the country are like this, but I'm certainly grateful that I was here at the right time, in the right place and have these amazing colleagues that really everyone is motivated by the same thing, right? Let's figure out how to make this better and how we can improve and be more effective. And so that we put often put egos aside and we hash out what we think will work and won't work and get our, our hands dirty. So it's good. It's good stuff. And I, I feel very, very fortunate to be here. And I, I honestly, there are so many new dietitians in the Boston area who are working in the field and are fabulous. I mean, just incredible. And, you know, it's that whole kind of thing where the what is that saying where the, the student becomes the teacher, right? I really feel like there's so much reciprocity and I get to learn from these amazing colleagues that I have. I, I could name a million of them at this point. So it's good. That's so cool. Yeah. I love that. Well, you know, I'm curious to hear like with the battle scars, right? And, and everything you went through to sort of get to this place. Do you have any tips for people who are trying to do that sort of battle in their own lives, whether that's just individuals listening who want to sort of spread the health at every size and non-diet message in their community or with their friends and family who might be sort of opposed to these things and also for health professionals who want to take these messages to, you know, fellow physicians and healers of all kinds? Oh boy. You know, well, first of all, just keep going and absolutely connect with a supervisor who supports you and encourages you and, you know, allows you to kind of think about what is going to be your best work that you bring into your profession. I think that everyone, every body needs to be advocating for health at every size, right? Just like it's really wonderful when white men are able to stand up against bigotry and all of the the hatred that's going on, it's just as important for people of all different sizes to stand up for folks who are living in larger bodies, right? Who don't have that kind of thin privilege. So we're all in this together, right? It hurts all of us when we have the the weightism and the sexism and the racism and, you know, on and on. So I think everyone needs to find a way of having a voice and some people are really able to be in the public domain, you know, like yourself and some of my colleagues here in Boston. And that is just fabulous and brilliant. And then there are other people like me who are just going to be these worker bees. And we will keep working with our supervisees, both in groups as well as individually, both here in person. And then, as you know, I'm Skyping with people all over the world now. And we just keep at it, right? You keep in the work and find the, the tribe that supports you and find the supervisor that helps you, you know, develop yourself. 
Yeah, community, right? Finding yeah. a community that can reinforce you is so helpful because there really are all those those setbacks along the way. It's not smooth sailing to do this kind of countercultural work, but if you have people who are on the same page and can give you support when you need it and help you stand back up when you fall down or sit back up or I'm trying not to use ableist language. I realize how many like standing and like legs, you know, so get back up in whatever way, right? <laughs> Thank you. That's a really sweet kind of reframe. I, yeah, I totally get that. I think it's political in nature. And so, you know, we have organizations around the country, national organizations who are advocating as well. And a lot of it you know, maybe starts in the home. Uh, one of the, the facets of my little group practice is home-based meal support. And honestly, the clinicians are often doing some parenting guidance work when they go into the home as well. You know, sometimes it's about meal coaching and sometimes it's really about size acceptance. What does that look like? Is it sort of like family education around around size acceptance? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it's also bringing people into consciousness about it all because, as we've said, you know, it's so insidious. It's just kind of in our bones at this point that often parents would say that they have no problem with their child being, you know, higher on the growth scale or growth curve or whatever. But then you go and you sit down at meals with them and they're making comments all the time. They don't even realize that those comments are a problem, are shaming. And so it's kind of in the moment, in the vivo kind of way of, of catching it and being able to bring it to their attention and reflect on it. And honestly, so many times the parents are like, oh my Lord, I didn't even realize. Of course, that makes sense. That's so important. I think that subtlety, like the the ways in which people don't even realize they're acting in a way that's counter to their values or counter to what they want to espouse. Like, just like I caught myself using ableist language right there, you know, it's like, yeah. the, I'm like, I don't want to be ableist. That's not a value that I, you know, I'm, I'm anti-ableist. I'm <laughs> all abilities-ist. But in those little moments, it's like, oh, it's just part of my language. It's just part of the sort of fabric that we all are woven into. And to like, unweave yourself from it takes noticing. Right. That's right. And, and, in order to notice, right, in order to have that capacity, you have to be able to develop that capacity, that observation, that relationship mm -hmm. <laughs> to <laughs> yourself, right? And to have compassion for yourself and say, wow, look at that. I was just using language that I don't even want to be using. And it just kind of spilled out of me. And I want to try not to do that again. How do I bring that more to consciousness or whatever? But it's not that harsh, shaming criticism, right? That you develop the capacity to find compassion and notice things that you'd like to shift and have a compassionate approach to it. Yeah. You know, I will say that that has been such a journey and I feel like self-compassion is so key in being able to practice that kind of thing because I remember like... 10 years ago or something when I was in therapy, early in my days of therapy, my therapist pointing out some language that I had used or sort of making an observation about something that happened in the moment in the session. And it was so shameful. Like, it was hard for me to even talk about, you know. And now I can sort of feel that type of thing in therapy or bring it up myself or like in a public forum like this. And just, I think being able to be sort of relaxed about it and like, oh, look at what I did there 
is the result of so much work on self-compassion and sort of undoing the shame that because it's about like shame, I think, comes from feeling like you're fused to your behaviors or words or actions, right? Where it's like, oh, my doing this, my saying this means I'm a terrible person and I'm shameful. And being able to sort of say, no, like myself, the sort of compassionate witness part of myself is not that, you know, is is a good person. And I believe that and I trust that. And sometimes I make mistakes and say things that I don't mean and I can sort of observe that and correct that, right? So it's a very different stance to be coming from. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so it's amazing that you can be really young and learn that. And you, some people have to just kind of (laughs) age and get to that place. Right. Right. And I also think the part of us that does jump in there and feel ashamed of what we said, right. That part's trying to keep us from making a fool out of ourselves or, you know, from making such a big mistake again, where someone might get hurt or we might feel really embarrassed. And so it's doing its job, but it's like anything, you can tweak it so that it's a little bit more relaxed, right? You can come in there with the self-compassion and say, okay, stand back a little bit here. It's okay. (laughs) You haven't murdered anybody. You know, you're in the process of learning and you're human and and all of that. So, Right. Yeah. The common humanity where it's not like me versus the world, but like, oh, I did this thing that made a mistake and so many of us make mistakes and it's okay. Yeah, you know, the the blessing of a skin knee, right? I mean, there's there was something I was reading in the paper about how kids are being encouraged to make mistakes, right? So they learn resiliency and to be okay with the mistakes that they made. So I'm sure that this <laughs> this will um kind of run the gamut. But it is interesting, you know, the concept of being able to make mistakes, which means taking risks sometimes or saying things that you're not conscious of and how much we learn from our mistakes, right? It's just it's fabulous, right? And I think that's something for, you know, other professionals out there too who are coming to this work and maybe new to this work. Like I hear a lot of people say that they're scared to say the wrong thing or they don't want to engage and certainly certain spaces devoted to size acceptance and stuff can be more or less intimidating with that type of thing. But like if you can come at it from the perspective of trying your best and being compassionate with yourself when you stumble or when you do something that you, I don't even know if stumble might be ableist language. (laughs) Like when you say something that you don't mean or just phrase things in not the best way, or you sort of learn something new and you're like, oh, wow, my framing of this issue was completely reinforcing the diet mentality. And I didn't even realize it, right? Because I think there's just this awakening that happens over time as people deepen into this work and realize the way that they've conceived of it years ago or at the start of their journey is very different than it would be now. And that's, that's growth, right? That's what it is. Absolutely. And don't you feel closer to people when you can be really authentic and share mistakes, right? Or share things that have not worked so well, right? And that ability to be open and vulnerable is what allows us to really connect, I think, right? We can share the very essence of who we are. And, you know, of course we make mistakes, right? Totally. Yeah. I think it does really connect us to be able to say, hey, look at this part of our common humanity and sort of feel validated that we we all do this, right? We all make mistakes and we're not sitting out here on an island alone being bad people, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, you know, I know for the dietitians who come through my group and, you know, a lot of the group is organized around kind of training them and helping them feel much more expert in working with people who have disordered eating. I, I expect them to make mistakes. And the key to that, of course, as you're saying, is to be present so that you can own it and learn from it. And honestly, I've made tons of mistakes with clients. And I think as long as you can own it and work through it, you just deepen the relationship. So as long as your your framework is in the right place, which comes back to haze, right? Which comes back to being able to really honor, you know, the symptoms that a person has or the, the eating relationship that they have is protective of them, right? As you know, the CBT folks would say that's a you know, there's the function of the of the symptom, but that disordered eating is not only serving a purpose, but it's also protecting this, you know, vulnerable self. And we have to, I think, be very respectful of that and to honor that and to not shame a person for their eating disorder, which most of the time is really just in service of that core self, right? That vulnerable self. Mm, yes, that's really beautifully said. Oh, we're running out of time here and I want to be conscious of your time, but it's so wonderful talking with you. You just have such a wonderful, calming presence and beautiful perspective on all of this stuff. So I'm really grateful that you shared that with us. Oh, Christy, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Yes. And tell us where people can find you online and learn more about your work. Okay. So the group practice is called the Counseling and Nutrition Center 360. And the website is cnc360.com. I'm in Lexington and Concord. And the phone number for our practice is 781-674-1189. If anyone is interested in doing the internship in eating disorders, they can get in touch with the folks at Simmons College. Dr. Lisa Brown is the director there. And I guess that's it. I, we do have a Facebook page for Counseling and Nutrition Center as well. Awesome. Yeah. We'll put links to that in the show notes too so people can find you and follow you and learn more about your work. Okay. Thank you, Lisa. So great talking with you. You too. Take care, Christy. You too. And that's a wrap on our show for today. But before you go, I have a couple quick things I want to share. First, if you've gotten something out of this podcast, I want to ask you to please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Sharing on one of the Apple platforms helps bring us up in the podcast rankings so that more people discover us and so that we continue to drown out the pro-diet messages and keep rising up in the health category. We're in Apple's top 100 and frequently the top 50 health podcasts, which is huge, but I'd love to break into the top 10 to beat out those awful diety podcasts that are hanging out in those ranks right now. So help us out by sharing with your friends, and you can also leave a nice rating and review in Apple, iTunes, or your podcast provider of choice, because that really helps new listeners discover us and is always so appreciated. This episode was brought to you by M.M. LaFleur. 
M.M. Lafleur takes the work out of dressing for work by offering luxurious, pragmatic clothing and personal styling for folks in both straight and plus sizes. All you have to do is take a quick online survey, and an M.M. stylist will work one-on-one with you to build your work wardrobe and send you a bento box of four to six wardrobe staples and accessories. Once your bento arrives, you'll have four days to try everything on, then you can just keep what you like and send the rest back. It's completely free to try, and because they're not a subscription service, there's no commitment. So really, what have you got to lose? You can expand your wardrobe and support the podcast while you're at it, because when you show our advertisers some love, you're also helping us out. To try a bento yourself, visit mmbento.com. That's M-M-B-E-N-T-O dot com. Thanks so much to Lisa Pearl for being our guest today, and thanks to you for listening. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, head over to christyharrison.com slash 125 for episode 125. That's christyharrison.com slash 125. Food Psych is edited and engineered by the amazing folks at Podcast Fast Track. Our administrative and community manager is Ashley Soroya, and our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect?